Amen. It's so good to sing that promise together as a faith family that we just sang Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the water covers the sea. What a great promise that that day is coming in which the glory of God is going to fill the earth. You know, one of the things I am missing right now is my family, we're not really big movie goers, but I do enjoy going to the movies. But my favorite part is not just the smell of the hot, buttery popcorn. It's not just the feel and the comfort of a relaxing, comfortable chair. It's the previews. Now, some of you are sitting here thinking, you like the previews? I kind of do. That 10 to 15 minutes before the movie starts in which I get to see what is coming in the future. There's this sense in which I get to see movies that have already been made but have not been released yet. You see, there's this tension between the already and the not yet. Well, when we get to Mark chapter 9, we see where Jesus gives a preview, an appetizer, a taste of his coming glory. And we get to see the glory of Jesus on display. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter 9. As you're turning there, for those kids who are watching online and for the kids in this room, I want to invite you to draw me some pictures of what you hear in the story. So as you hear the story of Jesus, as you hear the sermon, use this as an opportunity to draw something out. You can doodle, you can outline, you can draw, whatever that looks like. I got a wonderful picture from last week from Avery Whitworth, just a tremendous colorful picture in which she writes down what the Lord taught her. And then I'm a little biased, but my daughter, Eliane, she took some sermon notes last week, and, and I'd like to, to read these to you. She said, uh, I love Jesus and dad. Uh, I think God loves you. God is big. Go big blue. (laughs) The spirit of the Lord is on our life, guys. God is at work. And and I'm so, so proud of what the Lord is teaching her. Uh, oh, it's so good. I love it. As you're turning there, I do want to just celebrate a, a, a win with you. Um, last week, I asked our faith family just to give uh, some school supplies so that we can bless our community. Uh, I've been in partnership with other churches here in our area of finding ways we can be a blessing. Uh, and so yesterday, uh, all the churches combined, we passed out more than 500 backpacks into our community. Uh, school supplies, all the leftovers are going to go into school counselors so that the kids who have needs this fall will have some access to those resources. And this is what we do as a faith family, as followers of Jesus, is that we find brothers and sisters who are like-minded from other churches in which we get to display the kingdom of Christ together. You see, as a faith family, we're not trying to build a brand. We're not trying to make the name of Westwood known. We want Jesus known. We're here to build the kingdom of Christ And I love how we have opportunities to do that, to lock arms with other brothers and sisters from across town and to serve our community well. So thank you for giving towards that. We have been going through a sermon series through the Gospel of Mark called On the Move. In this Gospel of Mark, it's 
hard-hitting, it's fast-paced. Mark focuses more on the actions of Jesus rather than the teachings of Jesus. It's been amazing to see how quickly we see where Mark will go from one scene of Jesus to another, almost like a home video that's spliced really close together where this is this event and then this event and then this event. Well, Jesus has announced his upcoming death and resurrection to his disciples. Well, not appreciating his negative vibe, Simon Peter rebukes Jesus. Well, Jesus turns, and I can't imagine Jesus saying this without pointing his finger. He says, get behind me, Satan, for you have in mind the things of man rather than the things of God. We then see where Jesus takes some time to teach his disciples and a crowd what it means to be a disciple. We see in chapter 8, verses 34 through 38, the cost of being a disciple. To follow Christ means that Jesus is greater than your possessions. He's greater than your prominence. He's greater than all that you have in this world, even your own life. And he says, if I don't have that priority or I'm more important than anything in your life, then you cannot be, be my disciple. You see, Mark 8, 34 through 38 is Jesus laying out, this is what it looks like to follow me. And as Jesus is preaching to this crowd, he tells them, some of you, some of you are going to get to see something pretty special. Look with me in Luke, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 9, verse 1. The scripture says, then he said to them, truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transfigured in front of them, and his clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah because he did not know what to say since they were terrified. A cloud appeared overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept this word to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. Then he asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah does come first and restores all things, he replied. Why then is it written that the son of man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did whatever they pleased to him just as it is written about him. In Mark 9, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, his inner three, up a high mountain to pray. And while on this mountain, Jesus gives the disciples a preview of what is coming in the future. I want you to notice here in the text first that this, this text compels us to, number one, look closely at the glory of the Son of God. Verse one, some of you are about to see something that is so powerful. You're going to see the kingdom of God coming in power. What's Jesus talking about? Six days later, Jesus takes his inner three, Peter, James, and John. They go up a high mountain. Now, there's lots of debate over which mountain this is. 
I, for one, I think it's Mount Hermon. It's the largest mountain in Israel. It's just miles from Caesarea Philippi where Jesus has just been teaching. And for me, I think that's where it is. But the scriptures don't tell us. We're just guessing. We're pontificating about where it took place. It seems as if the, the gospel writers are more focused not on where it took place, but what took place and the significance of this transfiguration. And right there in front of the disciples, Jesus was, verse 2, transfigured. That word transfigured is where we get the English word metamorphosis. Just as a caterpillar will transform into a butterfly, we see Jesus transform into a temporary glorified body. Well, what did he look like? Well, in Matthew's account, he tells us that his face shined like the sun. Mark tells us in verse 3, his clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no wanderer on earth could whiten them. You see, the glory of God was radiating from Jesus in his, even his clothes. They become a brilliant white light. You see, this dazzling light coming from Jesus is pointing to his deity. In Psalm 104, verse 1, it says, Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with majesty and splendor. He wraps himself in light as if it were a robe, shining like the sun, bursting forth in the darkness of night. Jesus is revealing his glory as the eternal son of God. Now, up to this point, Peter, James, and John, they've only seen Jesus in his humanity. Now, make no mistake, they've seen Jesus do some pretty remarkable things. He has walked on water. He has calmed storms with just a word. He has multiplied food to feed thousands. He has cast out demons. He has healed the sick. He has raised the dead. But now, they've never... They have never seen Jesus like this. We see later on where John recalls this moment when he's writing his gospel. And he says in John chapter 1 verse 14, we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son from the father. You see, Peter, James, and John, they were in that moment. They were stunned. They were in awe. They were amazed at what they were seeing. And for just a brief moment, our Lord's true identity in his glory is shining forth. And beloved, there is coming a day. <laughs> there is coming a day in which you will get to see it too. There is coming a day, beloved, for you who are in Christ, in which you will get to see the radiance of the glory of Jesus Christ. Revelation 21 tells us about the new Jerusalem, where it says the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it and its lamp is the Lamb. There's coming a day in which you will see the brightness of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What these disciples encountered on top of this mountain, you too will one day see. 
When you believe the gospel and trust in Christ, there's a promise from God that you are gonna see things that you can't even imagine. That's what's in store for us. So as we navigate, as we drudge right through this pandemic, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. There's coming a day in which you're gonna see his glory and he is gonna shine like the sun. Notice who shows up on this mountain, verse four. Elijah and Moses. And they're talking with Jesus. Now, what are they talking about? Well, Luke tells us. He tells us that they appeared in glory and they were speaking of his departure which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. You see, they were speaking of Jesus's coming death. In fact, that word uh, departure, Josh, can you throw that slide back up? I want our people to see this, Luke 9, 31. That word for departure there, that's the word exodus. Jesus is gonna lead God's people on a new exodus. Just as Moses led the exodus of God's people out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of bondage, we see Jesus who's speaking to Moses and Elijah and says, I'm going to go to the cross. I'm speaking of my departure and I'm going to lead a greater exodus. I'm going to lead people not out of slavery to Egypt, but out of slavery to sin. You will no longer be in bondage to sin and to death. I'm going to set people free, and I'm going to do so through the cross. What we see Jesus doing is talking on this mountaintop with Moses and Elijah about a coming day in which he is going to provide a departure for God's people. You see, Jesus is showing himself as the true and greater Moses. In Exodus 24, Moses went up a mountain with three men. And while up on top of that mountain, a cloud appeared. Isn't it interesting? Here is Jesus up on a mountain with three men, and a cloud appears. And the glory of God is so radiant that verse 3, his clothes were aglow with the brightest white. Here is Jesus speaking with Moses and Elijah. I remember, these two men represent something. Moses represents the law of God. Elijah represents being the prophet of God. Here we see where God takes these two who represent the law and the prophets, meeting with the fulfillment of both. You see, Jesus is the new and better Moses, who is the fulfillment of the law of God. Jesus is the new and better Elijah, who is the true prophet of God. What we see happening on this mountain is Jesus is showing himself as God, come in the flesh, who is the fulfillment of old covenant promise. Through the person and work of Jesus, we see that the law and the prophets are fulfilled. And today we look to Jesus, who is the one whom the entire Old Testament is pointing forward to.
Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. You see, he lived a perfect life that you couldn't live. Jesus came and lived in such a way that he kept every law of God perfectly. You see, God gave his law to show his character, to show what he is like as holy, as one who is set apart. God gave his character to show that we can't keep it. None of us are perfect. None of us can keep God's law perfect. But he also gives us his law to point to a future law fulfiller. Jesus, who keeps all of it perfectly on your behalf. And so when you trust in Christ, God in Christ looks at you as if you kept the law perfectly. That's one of the most amazing parts of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We see this holy transaction where all of the righteousness of Jesus is applied to us when we trust in him, when all of our sin and failure and shame is placed upon him at the cross. Do you see the love that God has for you? That through his son, he's made a way to set you free from sin and death. That Jesus at the cross takes all of your shame. But God takes the perfect obedience of his son and he accounts it to you. He sees Christ in you and sees you as perfect because his perfect son lives inside of you. Beloved, let us look closely at the glory of the Son of God. Secondly, we need to listen carefully to the voice of God. Now, this is a lot for the disciples to take in, y'all. They have just seen what no one has ever seen before. So what does Peter do? Peter did what Peter does, talk. He's one of those guys where he kind of shoot, fire, aim, ready. I'm just going to start talking. In fact, that's what he does here in verse five. He says, uh, lost my place. Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. I love verse six, because he did not know what to say. (laughs) I love that. It's like, I don't know what to say. I'm going to say something. He's terrified. Have you ever been in that moment where you're just so nervous, anxious, afraid that you just start talking and babbling and it doesn't even make sense? I remember the first time I asked Christy out on a date. And we were students at the University of Kentucky. I was at her apartment. We were sitting on her couch. And I was so nervous that my hands were sweating profusely. And so I was sitting on the couch and I'm just rubbing my hands on my jeans, just trying to get the sweat out. And I'm saying this, hey, what would you think about, would you consider, would you pray through, I don't know, you may not be interested in this at all. Maybe one day we could consider, I, I think it'd be great, but you, I don't know about this. But, and, and, and I'm like, Kenneth, just say it, right? Like, come on, buddy, you can do this. Finish strong. And would, would you consider, I don't know, maybe one day you and I could maybe go out on a date together? And she was like, well, sure. And I was like, oh my goodness, that was so hard. (laughs) Okay, take that moment. Multiply at times being in the presence of Moses, Elijah, and a glowworm Jesus. 
And that's Peter. He just starts talking. Uh, oh my goodness, I don't know what to say, I don't say. In fact, they're right there, verse six, he says the word, uh, there's a pulpit here. There's a... Um, that uses that word terrified. Y'all, this thing's on wheels and I love it, but man, it's painful sometimes. He uses that word terrified. Okay, that word only shows up two other times in scripture. In both times, the person using it is using it in reference to fear of dying under God's wrath. Okay, so here, <laughs> here is Peter, afraid he's going to die under God's wrath and he just starts talking. He, he's just trying to get this out of him. He just doesn't know what to say. He's got to say, got to say something here. Because right here is Elijah's and Moses and Jesus. And, and he's just in shock of what he's experiencing. Because this is the same Moses who 1,400 years ago said in Deuteronomy 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. You see, Moses was looking forward to a day in which a prophet just like him who would rise up from the Jewish people, who would be a prophet who would speak for God. He says, you must listen to him. Well, Jesus is that promised prophet whom we are to listen to. Jesus is the one who speaks and we listen and obey. But Moses isn't the only one who's commanding obedience here. Jesus, uh, Moses is not the only one who's calling to uh, listen to Jesus. Look at verse seven. It says, a cloud appeared overshadowing them and a voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him. This cloud is the Shekinah glory of God. We see it appearing in the Old Testament at the tent of meeting and at the tabernacle of the Old Testament. This is the very presence of God that has now enveloped this mountain. In fact, Luke tells us about this moment that the disciples were fearful as they entered the cloud. Matthew says that after they heard the voice of the Father, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. Here is this voice, the same voice that spoke over Jesus at his baptism is now speaking over Jesus on this mountain. Now, this is a moment that Peter would never forget because we see later in his second letter of 2 Peter, he says this. He says, for we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And then watch this. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We, heard our, we ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. You see, for Peter, he would forever recall this moment in which Jesus took him and his two fishing buddies up the mountain and they encounter God in a way that no one has encountered him before as Jesus is transfigured right before them. And we see the command of God and we, we, we hear the command of Moses in the Old Testament 
saying, listen to him. Listen to Jesus. Well, beloved, where do we go to listen to Jesus? The writer of Hebrews tells us. In Hebrews 1, long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. You see, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature. And now God speaks to us not through prophets, but through his own son. And when Jesus is walking along that Emmaus road in Luke 24. Walking alongside two disciples who are disheveled. They have just experienced a weekend that has changed their lives and they can't get their heads around it. And after his resurrection, Jesus is walking alongside these two disciples and he says, what are y'all talking about? And they're like, do you not know what just happened? And Jesus I love how he, he leads through this. He says, what are you talking about? Amen. Well, about this Jesus, the one who claimed to be the son of God and went and died on a cross, and now some women are telling us that he raised from the dead. And Jesus is like, oh, really? And then the scripture says this in Luke 24, 27. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, watch this, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. If you want to obey the command of God to listen to Jesus, you have to study the scriptures. Here is Jesus saying, go to the Old Testament and it's talking about me. It's driving you to me, who I am and what I came to do in the gospel. You see, if you want to hear from Jesus, open the Bible and read. This is where God speaks primarily today through his word. You be careful of people who claim to have dreams of special revelation. When someone says, well, God told me, I get very cautious because if what they reveal contradicts scripture, that ain't from God. But if what they say agrees with God's word, why do you need that in the first place when you've already got scripture? Here we see Jesus pointing to the scriptures through which he would speak to his People And God here is commanding you, listen to his son. Oh, that you would be a man and a woman of the book. That you would love the scriptures. You would pour over the scriptures. Give your life to the study of the scriptures. Because in the scriptures, it's driving you to Jesus. It's driving you to know and love the one who knows and loves you. And as you seek to master this book, this book begins to master you. This is the word of God. It's breathing, it's living, it's active, sharper than a two-edged sword. And Jesus here is the one that 
the father is pointing you to say, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Do what he says. And then all of a sudden, with their faces planted to the ground, trembling in fear, the disciples looked around, verse 8, and they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Now, what do you do in that moment? Catch your breath. Pinch yourself. Did I just experience that? Now, don't miss the significance of what's just happened here. The disciples have just gone through the Shekinah glory, and they didn't die. Why? Jesus. Jesus, the mediator, the one who represents both God and man, the one who protects you and saves you from the wrath of God, the one who makes a way so that in him you are no longer under wrath and you no longer have to fear death because he took wrath and death for you. You see, it's in this moment we see where we are to run to Jesus, our mediator. We don't run to the law of Moses. Religion can't save you. Trying to keep the law, I can't save you. And we don't run to Elijah because all the prophets, they're dead. But there's Jesus. We run to Jesus who fulfilled the law of Moses, who is the true prophet, who bore the curse of sin on the cross for you. And he is alive. And he is alive forevermore. Hebrews 7.25 says Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. But don't miss verse eight. Look at it again. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Moses and Elijah, gone. The cloud disappeared. The voice of the Father, silence. And it's just Jesus. The mountaintop experience is over. The thrill, the excitement of being in the very presence of, of God, it's over. And it's just Jesus. And beloved, here we are in the midst of this pandemic. And many of us are spiritually, we're clawing, we're trying, probably struggling. It's been a long time since we've had a mountaintop experience with God. And it's just Jesus. And the question I have for you is, is Jesus enough for you? Is he enough? Because we see Peter, he wants to set up camp. Let's put up shelters, Elijah, Moses, Jesus. Let's, set up, let's, let's, let's just let's stay here. Let's stay at summer camp. Let's stay in the euphoria of the moment, the glory of God. And Jesus is like, not yet. It's time to go down the mountain. Y'all, that is where discipleship happens. It's when the thrill and the excitement and the euphoria of the experience of God, it goes away and it's just Jesus. And I want to know for you, is Jesus enough? As we walk through this season, we have to socially distance and wear masks and we have to find ways to gather together where we just can't have that experience like we used to have is Jesus enough? That was a question I was asking myself this week. 
as I was wrestling through just, just anxiety and worry and fear and all of these things that are crowding my heart. And the Lord's like, Kenneth, is Jesus enough? When all of the thrill and the euphoria and the excitement goes away, is Christ enough? But that's discipleship. That is when you walk with Jesus, when the highs are not so high and the lows aren't so low and you're just walking faithfully with him every day walking with Christ. There's not fireworks or thrill rides. It's just obedience. Because eventually we come down the mountain and it's in the valley that you find the fruit. I put my eyes upon Mount Hermon and you know what's up there? Nothing. It's snow and stone. But you come down the mountain, lush greenery. It's agricultural beauty everywhere. That is where the fruit is. And so, beloved, as we walk through this season, let us find that Jesus alone is enough and let us listen carefully to the voice of God. Third and finally, let's learn completely of the great gospel plan of God. It's time to go back down the mountain. And as the downward hike commences, Jesus probably stops his disciples for a moment and he issues them a command, verse nine, tell no one what you just saw. Why? Because if Peter, James, and John go back, tell the disciples, they tell the crowd, hey, guess what we just saw? Then the crowd says, Jesus you're the king who's going to take down Rome. And that's not why Jesus came. You see, the cross must come before the crown. Jesus has to suffer before he will be seated. He came to fulfill his purpose of going to the cross and trying to take on a temporary, weak kingdom where he sits on an earthly throne, where he has dominion over Rome. It's not why he came. He has an even greater purpose and he's got to get to Calvary. He's got to lay his life down for the sins of the world. So the disciples agree, verse 10, that they're not gonna tell anybody, but they're still not quite sure what he meant. He said, rise from the dead. And they're like, ah, what? Now they believe in the resurrection. They know that the resurrection is coming at the last day. They just didn't know that Jesus was a few months away. And so with the end times on their minds, they asked Jesus about Elijah. Why do the scribes say that he has to come first? You see, for centuries, Jews waited for Elijah, knowing that when he appears, the kingdom of God would break through and the Messiah would show up. When this Elijah comes, he's going to preach repentance and, hey, look to this Messiah. And then he would anoint the Messiah for ministry. But in the mind of these three disciples, they just saw Elijah up on top of the mountain. And they're trying to understand, what, what's going on here, Jesus? He tells them, verse 12, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Jesus is saying, verse 13, as for Elijah, he's already come. And John the Baptist, he is the Elijah who came pointing forward to me. Do you remember uh, when, Zach, when uh, Zechariah went into the temple? This is John the Baptist's dad. He goes into the temple to serve and the angel Gabriel appears and he tells him about his son who's about to come to his wife. And he's like, I'm, 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 listen, I'm old. How am I gonna be a dad? We're barren, we don't have any kids. 
And Angel Gabriel tells him, no, 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 you're going to have a son. And in Luke 1, 17, Angel Gabriel says, he, John the Baptist, will go before him, the Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah. So Jesus here is connecting John the Baptist as the Elijah who is the one who was the trailblazer who went before him. And just as they rejected John's message and killed him, verse 13, Jesus is saying, verse 12, they're gonna do the same to me. I'm gonna be rejected. I'm gonna be killed. But I am going to rise again on the third day. And when you trust in me, you will find that I am the one that everyone has been looking for. You see, the gospel plan of God is worth giving your entire life to. This Jesus, who is the promise of God, which is your impact point, it's this study the person and work of Jesus and be amazed at what is to come. This has been my hope for us as a faith family. As we study the gospel of Mark, you'll look at Jesus and be amazed. And not only just be in wonder, but it would compel you to listen and obey him. Because when we get to Mark chapter 9, we see the transfiguration of Jesus. It's a preview of what's coming. And y'all, what's coming? (laughs) Get your popcorn ready you're going to see the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ.